You are at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Discover the Word podcast with Kevin Perney. This is a ministry of discovertheword.net. series of messages called Ministry Done Right, verse by verse uh, of the book of 2 Corinthians. We're now in the third chapter, so if you want to keep your Bible open there, beginning in verse number one, that might be helpful in a message I'm calling Keeping It Real. Now, the broad context of 2 Corinthians is that the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry. There were some people at the church at Corinth that had criticized him Really, they criticized him for a number of things, but probably leading the list is they said that his motives were somehow disingenuous. And so in chapter 2, he defends his motives as being real, and we've already looked at that, but I want you to just be reminded of the last verse of that chapter of what he says, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, For we are not, as so many, peddling the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, We speak in the sight of God in Christ. He said, we're not peddling the word of God. The word peddle there is the idea of adulterate or to to dilute. It was a word used of wine merchants that would top off the wine with water so they uh, could make it go further in, in selling it. And so he said, I didn't really do that with the gospel. I didn't somehow mix the gospel or dilute it. I preached to you the, the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, any... Anytime you have something that is real and something of value, there will always be fakes. I mean, they say diamonds are a girl's best friend. Well, there are fake diamonds. There are fake Rolex watches. There are fake pieces of art. If you look down at your ring finger and you see green around your finger, you may have a fake ring. There's even fake money, counterfeit money. So why should we be surprised that Satan has fake preachers, ministers of the gospel? Or why should we be surprised that there is a fake message that appeals to the flesh? There are those today that preach a slick gospel of health and wealth. They say, if you come to Jesus, you'll never be sick. If you come to Jesus, you'll always be wealthy. And, and sometimes it's on television. They say, send in your money, and you, if you give so much money, you will get so much money back. And it makes the motivation greed that we give to get. And that doesn't work for anyone, except maybe the one that promoted it that they send the money into, I guess. But Paul said, I didn't do that. I didn't somehow peddle the gospel or dilute the message of of Christ. I preached with sincerity. Literally, we could say I preached in the light of the sunlight. I preached with full disclosure of the light of the sun. Now, in chapter 3, he lays out for us what an authentic ministry is to look like. It's important to be able to spot a fake. You don't want to be wearing glass for a diamond. You don't want to have a fake piece of art hanging in your home that you paid a lot of money for. You don't want a billfold full of counterfeit $20 bills. So how do you spot a fake? What is it that authenticates a ministry or a minister as being real? Is it a seminary education? Is it a certificate of ordination? 
Is it a large church? The fact is it is none of those things. Here's the first point. An authentic ministry is validated, is not validated simply by the praise of others. Now, sometimes we think that's what validates it. We get the idea, well, if it's a big church or if someone has a big following, that that in itself is validation of the authenticity of that ministry. But there is a vast difference between a crowd and a church, a real church. In fact, sometimes it is cults and false religions that are the fastest growing groups, religious groups in the world. So simply that there's a following or a lot of people involved doesn't in of itself validate a ministry as being authentic. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, verse number 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Now, they didn't have modern means of communication back then as we do. They couldn't just Google some leader's name and find out all about them. And so they carried with them letters of recommendation. If you were an itinerant pastor, whatever church you came from, you carried a letter of commendation, a letter recommending you. And, and we essentially still do that today. Occasionally, we license a young man to the gospel ministry. And wherever they go in life, they have that certificate of license saying that Valley Baptist Church authenticates this person as being genuine in their call to ministry. Sometimes someone moves to another city or they move to another church and they transfer their membership that we write that other church a letter that's saying this person is in good standing with our church. So we still do that somewhat today. In fact, when you read the New Testament, the entire letter of Philemon is really a letter of commendation uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote. Well, in Paul's day, evidently there were some false teachers that had showed up at Corinth. There were false teachers that went to Galatia. In fact, everywhere that Paul went, it seems like false teachers trailed behind him. And some of them had letters of recommendation, letters of commendation, and yet they were not real. And so Paul said, I don't really have letters commending me because th there's not really that much value in it. I mean, Paul could have had really a fat resume when you think about it. He could have had some great letters of commendation. He was a world traveler. I mean, in the days when people seldom traveled beyond 20 miles from their, where they were born, Paul had traveled all over the known world. Paul was an absolutely brilliant man. Now, Paul says, look, I'm not trying to commend myself. And uh, I don't have letters of commendation because they don't really mean that much. And really, sometimes letters of recommendation don't mean a lot. I heard about a lazy man that wanted to change jobs, and so he asked his boss if he would write a letter of recommendation. Well, the boss was kind of conflicted. He wanted to be honest, but he also wanted to get rid of this guy. He was hoping he would take another job. And so here's what he wrote. He wrote to the new boss. He said, if you can get Bob to work for you, you will be extremely fortunate. Another guy wrote a letter of commendation, kind of riding that fence, and said, if you get to know Tim the way I do, I'm confident you'll feel about him exactly as I do. <laughs> well, letters of recommendation don't always mean that much because uh, what people say really doesn't validate whether a ministry is real or not. Uh, they don't really mean a lot because, first of all, people change in their opinions, don't they? 
I mean, one day as a leader, people approve you. The next day they criticize you. And that's true in friendship. One day you're the hero, the next day you're the zero. That was true of Jesus on the last week of his life. They begin the week by hailing him. They ended the week by nailing him. So people change in their opinions. Another reason it doesn't mean that much is sometimes people can be flat out wrong in their, in their opinions. One newspaper editor during Abraham Lincoln's day really ripped into him for the Gettysburg Address. He said it was inappropriate and it's not even worth mentioning. That's the Gettysburg Address. Thomas Edison, the famous inventor, his grade school teacher said, well, he's stupid and he could, could never learn. Walt Disney was fired from his first job working for a newspaper and the editor said he had no creative ideas. That's Walt Disney. Noah in the Bible preached for 120 years and no one listened to him except his own family. You see, people can be wrong in either their praise or in their criticism. Another reason that letters of commendation really don't mean that much on occasion is people are so varied in their opinions. I mean, everyone has an opinion and it varies from person to person. Uh, if you as a leader try to please everyone, that, that's really an impossible task. I, I think in some ways, the toughest job in the church is the worship leader. I've watched it through the years of notes that come in to the worship leader, whoever it might be, and sometimes the note will say, this was the most awesome service, it was the greatest worship service we ever in, it was just tremendous, and another note will say, well, it was just terrible, we didn't like it at all, and it's the same exact service. That's because we are so varied in our musical tastes and so forth. But it's not just music. We, we vary in our opinions greatly in many areas of life. If you worry about what people think about you, let me give you a little relief. If you're worried what people are thinking about you, the fact is they're probably not even thinking about you at all. I mean, we think they're thinking about us, but they're really not. Paul says what validates ministry is not what others think or not what others say. And now listen to this principle. This is important. An authentic ministry is characterized by changed lives. Look what he says in verse number two. He said, you are our epistle, our letter written in our hearts known and read by all men. Clearly you're an epistle of Christ ministered by us written not with ink but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Paul said, look, I, I don't carry with me letters of commendation. You are the letter of commendation, your life. Now, remember, Paul had started the church at Corinth, and many of those people he had led to Christ, and there had been dramatic changes in their life, and he said, that's what valid validates my ministry. It's not that I carry letters from Jerusalem somehow, from the church back there, but your changed lives validate that my ministry is the real deal. Now, he had already written them uh, a letter before this in 1 Corinthians. I want you to see what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He gives this litany, this list of awful sin. And he says, no one that's living that way 
is going to inherit the kingdom of God. A drunkard, a reviler, a, an extortioner, a, a homosexual, a sodomite. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He gives this big list of sin and he says, that's the way some of you used to live. But now the grace of God has invaded your life and you've been absolutely changed. God had dramatically changed their lives. And he said, that change is the validation of authentic ministry. We evaluate sometimes a school by its students. We evaluate a company by its product or sometimes by its service. We evaluate a church by its converts. Apostle Paul said, all of us as believers, we are open letter to our community by the way we live. Most people in our culture never read the Bible. I'm convinced that many Christians don't read the Bible, not very often. But the culture at large, most people seldom, if ever, read the Bible. All they know of the gospel is what they see in the life of those that claim to be Christians. That, that, that's what they know of Jesus. I, I ran across this little poem that says, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men, read what you write where the faithless are true. Say what is the gospel according to you. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor, what's the best translation of the Bible or what's the most popular translation of the Bible? I can tell you the most read translation of the Bible. It's how you are translating it into your life. That's the one that the most people read. It's the, the gospel that you're living. I mean, people can debate and they will debate theology with you and they'll debate philosophy or they'll debate, debate doctrine. But the one thing that the world cannot debunk is a change to life. And the gospel changes people. I, I could probably name a thousand people that God has radically and dramatically changed their lives right here at these steps. That God has changed their life. He's changed their marriage. He's changed their home life. He's broken addictions in life. He has absolutely changed them from the inside out. And that's what the gospel does. It changes you from the inside. When God forgives you, gives you a new heart, a new life, and eventually that change makes its way to the outside. Now, legalism is the opposite. It's, it's all external. Legalism is the keeping of rules, keeping of the law, the rules, the do's and the don'ts, and that's all external. But grace, that's internal. Changed life is a powerful testimony. But an inconsistent life is a tremendous hindrance to the gospel. The person that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then they live an inconsistent Christian life, People read that also. Abraham is the quintessential man of faith of the Old Testament, and Abraham and his wife Sarah went down to Egypt for a while. And Sarah, the Bible says, was a very beautiful woman. So Abraham, he thinks well, what's going to happen is we get to Egypt, and the Pharaoh's going to see Sarah, and he's going to want to add her to his harem of, of wives. And so he goes to Sarah and says, you know, Pharaoh's going to want you as a wife, and he's not going to marry a married woman, so he's going to bump me off. He's going to kill me. He doesn't want to marry a married woman, but he has no problem killing people, so he's going to kill me and marry you. It's going to be bad for both of us. Actually, it's going to be a lot worse for Abraham. That's what he's thinking, because he's going to be dead. So he said, Sarah, here's what you do. 
you tell everyone you're my sister, not my wife. Now, there was some truth to that, a level of truth to it, because in those days, it was before God gave the laws concerning incest, and he, she was actually a half-sister of, uh, of Abraham, but a half-truth is really a full lie. And so she lied. Abraham lived with the deceit. And Pharaoh discovered it, and he was angry. He said, well, I could have married her, and I would have been married, uh, married a, a married woman. And he rebukes Abraham, and then he kicks him out of the country, sends him away. Now, the Bible doesn't say this. I'm kind of reading between the lines, but I think it's accurate. I think that the Pharaoh probably had the attitude, if that's a believer, I don't want anything to do with God. If that's the man of faith, and that's how he lives, with that kind of deceit, then I don't want to follow that God whatsoever. You see, people are watching. And it's not just your children, your grandchildren. We know they're watching. But it's people you work with all around. I mean, we're the only Bible that many people are ever going to read. It's the gospel according to us of how we translate it into our, our lives. People are watching. Now, as a pastor, I'm particularly cognizant of that, that everywhere I go, I know people are watching me. Now, I, I, I don't want to do anything to dishonor Christ. Years ago, when we were raising our family, our two sons, they both were involved in all kinds of athletics, and one of the things they did was they wrestled. And I remember with our, I think it was our youngest son, we went to a regional tournament somewhere, and uh, it was either up north or maybe in uh, Las Vegas, Reno, somewhere, and uh, we had to get a hotel or a motel. And it was a couple of days, so we check in the motel, and then we'd go to the tournament. And one morning, we came out of the motel, got in the car, and I told my wife, I'll be right back. And I went back in the motel. Now, to understand the story, you have to understand something about me. And, and this is going to shock you. I know you probably won't believe it. But I'm very competitive. I tend to be. And I don't always agree with the referee. I know that's shocking, but it's true. And so... In those days, I would always be on the mat with my young son. And so I came back and got in the car, and my wife said, well, why'd you have to go back in? I said, I changed my shirt. She said, well, why did you change your shirt? I said, well, I had a promise keeper shirt on. <laughs> and I don't trust my flesh. <laughs> Not at a tournament. Now, it would have been better instead of changing my shirt if I had changed my heart. That would have been a whole lot better if I had changed my attitude towards the referees. But I didn't want to do anything that would dishonor Christ. And I, I, I really didn't trust myself. The validity of ministry is in changed lives, in how people live. People that are being saved, that their life is radically changed, People that are saved, the best are becoming better. They're becoming transformed and sanctified. The validity of a ministry is not measured in its size or buildings or budgets or the number of people that attend. The question is, are lives being changed? It's not just about the Word of God being preached. I mean, we gather today, hopefully, that we can be fed spiritually. But 
The church is not just about being fed spiritually until we get kind of spiritually obese. You know, we've been feeding on the Word of God. It's not just that we gather to, to, to increase Bible data that we understand or that we know so that we can win a Bible trivia game. The measure of ministry is our lives being changed. Our addictions being broken. Our marriage is being restored. Paul said... I don't need a letter of commendation. The fact that your life has been changed, that there were adulterers and sodomites and, and, and revilers and extortioners and such were some of you. That's my letter of commendation. That's my letter of recommendation is changed lives. Here's the next principle. An authentic ministry is not characterized merely by self-confidence, but rather by dependence upon God. Look what he says in verse number four. And five, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, sometimes when you read the book of 2 Corinthians and, and you realize that Paul is really defending his ministry and his motives, you can kind of read it as braggadocious, that he's bragging, he's kind of the real deal, and, you know, he's the genuine article and all that. But what he just said kind of puts an end to that thinking. He said, I don't have any sufficiency in myself. My, my confidence is not in myself, it's in God. My confidence when I changed my shirt that day was not in myself. I had no confidence in myself. Our confidence should be in Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I'm utterly dependent upon Christ. Now, just about any book that you'll ever read on success says one of the keys to success is you have to believe in yourself. That's not what Paul is saying. The reality is, at times, we all fail. I don't care how much you believe in yourself. Eventually, our talents diminish. Our memory fades. Our reflexes slow. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see, God's resources are endless. Ours are, are limited. Pride sometimes keeps us from acknowledging how weak we really are. But until we recognize and admit our own weakness, we're never going to tap in to God's strength. We think that, here, that, that what God's looking for as us as a believer, that God is looking for our abilities. And we say, well, you know, I have this talent, and I have this intellect, or I have the money, I, I have these things, and, and, you know, God really got a prize when he got me, you know, with all this bundle of talent that I've got. But that's not what God's looking for. God's limitless. He's not looking for abilities. He's looking for availability. Paul had already written the Corinthian church in the first letter, about how that God uses nobodies so that he gets the glory. Let, let's refresh ourselves of what he said in the first letter in chapter 1 and verse number 27. He says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not, literally nothing, the things that are nothing to bring to nothing, the things that are. Here's the reason. That no flesh should glory in his presence. There are two important levels when it comes to church life. There's taking in, receiving spiritual nourishment, through the preaching of the Word of God, we're fed spiritually through our small groups, through connecting to God in sweet worship, we, we, we take in. 
I wouldn't spend five minutes in a church where I wasn't being fed spiritually. I wouldn't. I mean, some people say, well, I'm in this church, and I'm not being fed spiritually, but I'm really ministering to other people. There, there's a limit to that. You give out, give out, give out, and you're not taking in, taking in. You just wither up and die. You just shrivel up in your, in your Christian life. So the first thing is that you have to take in. But sometimes we have the opposite problem. We're being fed spiritually. We're so well fed that we become a little bit spiritually plump. We're metabolically challenged spiritually. The metaphor of the Christian life should never be a sponge that we just come to church and we just soak in the preaching and we soak in the teaching and we soak in the worship. The metaphor should be a river of life flowing to other people. Sometimes we get the idea, though, that God can't use us. And, it, and it's not because of pride always. Sometimes it's not because of self-confidence. It's because of a lack of confidence in God. We live in an age of superstars. We're aware of that because of media. There, there are incredible athletes that have extraordinary skills. But let me tell you, just because Tiger Woods can hit a golf ball and make millions playing golf doesn't mean I can't enjoy a day out on the golf course once in a while, even though I can't hit the ball like he does. Often, even in the Christian life, we're intimidated by the ability of other Christians. There are famous athletes and, and uh, actors that give their testimony and great singers and media ministers. And we think, well, I'm just garden variety people. We feel inadequate. We think, well, God really can't use me. But God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways so that he gets the glory. Sometimes other people even make us feel inadequate. Heard about a young preacher just kind of starting out, preached uh, one of his early sermons, and him and his wife were standing at the back of the church together, and someone came by and said, you are a great preacher. Well, the young preacher's with his wife in the car later on, and said, did you hear what so-and-so said? She says, yeah, I heard it. And then he said, ask his wife, how many great preachers do you think there are in the world? today. And she said, one less than what you think. <laughs> Sometimes people make us feel inadequate, don't they? The reality is God uses ordinary people so that he gets the glory. You know what the greatest illustration I think in all the Bible of that is? Is the boy David fighting the giant Goliath. I mean, the Philistines had this giant named Goliath. What if the Israeli army had a giant named David? And they go out and they lock in mortal combat and they fight till the sun goes down. And finally, the giant Goliath, David overwhelms the giant Goliath and he wins. And everyone says, yay, our giant won. Let's go eat supper. Because a little boy with a slingshot defeated the giant, we're still talking about it today. And God gets the glory. Listen to what Oswald Chambers said about this issue. He said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen to use nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made uh, possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose to use somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. You may feel like a nobody this morning, or you may not feel good physically. You may feel limited in some way. 
I want you to know that's the kind of people God delights in using so he gets the glory. One last point is this. An authentic ministry is not characterized by legalism, but rather by an emphasis upon grace. Look what he says in, in, in verse number six. He's talking about God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. He begins now this lengthy passage that we'll look at later of a contrast between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New. He's saying the Old Testament is about the law. The New is about grace. And the law, or the letter as he calls it, the letter of the law, he said it kills. Well, how does the Old Testament law or commandments kill? Well, this morning of all I had to preach was the Ten Commandments. It would be despair. No hope because no one lives up to them. We've all broken at least one, most of us multiples of the, of the Ten Commandments. So here's what the law does. The law diagnoses our disease. Hey, you're a sinner, but it offers no cure. No ability to overcome. Let's suppose that we all decide to go over to the central coast somewhere on the beach. We have inspirational talk. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to dive in that cold water and we're going to swim to Hawaii. We're going to have a great vacation together. Okay, let's go. We have the inspirational speech. We all jump in. We all begin to swim. The end result is the same for all of us. We all drown. Because no one can make it. It's an impossible task. We all fail. That's the demand of the law. The law has given us an impossible task to live up to all the legalism, all the, all the rules. And so we all fail. Now let's suppose we're swimming as hard as we can. We're getting tired. And there's a big cruise ship that comes along, sends out some little boats to us and says, hey, if you get in the boat, we'll take you back to the cruise ship. You can lay on the deck. We'll bring you some iced tea. There's a nice buffet. It's all free. We'll do all the work and we'll take you to Hawaii. You know who would be the most hesitant to get on the ship? The best swimmers. They would say, hey, I'm not about to give up. Not yet. I can do it. I can do it. I can make it. No, you can't. Sometimes the person that is good, as far as our culture is concerned, the person that is moral, they look at the commandments and they say, I can do it. I can live by the law. I'll live a good life. I can do better. I, I can keep these commandments. No, you can't. They have trouble admitting they're a sinner. They have trouble saying what I need is a Savior. No matter how good you are, it's not enough. All of our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags compared to God. We are drowning, and along comes the gospel ship. <laughs> A ship of grace saying, good on board, and I'll take you all the way. The Golden Gate Bridge was built between 1933 and 1937. You might not have known it was that old. During the first half of construction, there was more than a dozen men that fell to their death because it's 700 feet in the air. Joseph Strauss was in charge of construction, so after that many men died, he stopped construction. And he ordered that a net be built. There was a lot of 
people that second guess that because the net itself cost $100,000. That was back in the 1930s. Nevertheless, he ordered that the net be built. In the second half of construction, about a half dozen men or so fell, but no one died. But here's the amazing thing. In the second half of construction, efficiency increased by 25%. The net did not make men careless. It made them confident. We have a net of grace. It should not make us careless in the way we live because we're all writing this autobiography. Oh, it may not be on a Word document. It may never be published. But we're writing it day by day, and there are people who are reading it as we're writing it. And this net that we have of grace should never make us careless in how we live. But it should make us confident that we are secure in the hand of Christ. We hope you were blessed by today's message and want to thank you for joining us on this Discover the Word journey today. If you have a moment, would you join with others in going to iTunes and leaving a good review for us? Thanks. We also invite you to visit our website, discovertheword.net. Until next time, have a wonderful day and may God richly bless you.